I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. My guest on The Literary Life uh, today is Carlos Lozada. We're here celebrating a remarkable new book that he wrote called What Were We Thinking? A Brief Intellectual History of the Trump Era. And to put it all in context, we're speaking a week after the election. So we can ask ourselves once again, what were we thinking? <laughs> um, um, Carlos, I found your book fascinating uh, in so, on so many different levels. Um, as a bookseller, I sold so many of those books, and I saw, I saw and witnessed the trends that you wrote about as well. And on another level, I found it to be in a remarkable uh, reference book as well. I love the way you organized it, and at the end of every chapter, you have the books that illustrate what you're talking about in this chapter. So give me a little background about the book and how you came, uh, how you came to write it and why you wrote it. Sure. Uh, thank you, first, for, for having me on, on the podcast. Um, the book was sort of accidental. Um, I became the book critic of the Washington Post in the, the nonfiction critic in 2015. Um, and just a few months before Donald Trump announced his his candidacy. And I didn't think a lot of it. Like many people, I thought it was sort of a, a publicity stunt. Um, but when he started doing well in the polls for the nomination, 
of the Republican Party, I decided that I would read a bunch of Trump's own books just to see what I could learn about uh, the guy. Um, even though they were ghostwritten, I mean, I think ghostwritten books still reveal something about how someone wishes to be perceived. So I asked my editor and he said, yeah, that sounds a good idea, but you should really hurry up because who knows how long this is going to last. You know, uh, this was, of course, uh, July 2015. Um, but so I, I read a bunch of his books. I, I, I wrote about it for the Post and I thought that would be my one shot at this um, at this phenomenon. But of course, once he starts doing well, I. Um, started reading books about his supporters. People wanted to know who was, you know, who was supporting Donald Trump. And that's when all these books about the white working class started to come out. Hillbilly Elegy and uh, White Trash and uh, Strangers in Their Own Land, these sorts of books. Uh, and then of course he wins the nomination and he wins the election. And suddenly there's all these resistance books that start coming out. And so I start reading those and writing about those. And that's when it hit me that this was sort of my beat. This is what I was going to be doing at the post for a while, that all the big debates of the Trump era were going to be in some way litigated through books. Um, and so any big fight that happened, books about truth, books about uh, identity and immigration, uh, I would just dive into them. And I think it was after the midterm election in 2018, maybe early the next year, that I thought that I should try to put this all together, try to understand what these books were saying collectively. And so I thought I would first do that in a, a piece for the Sunday Washington Post. So I pitched it to my editor, we decided to do it, I start writing, and I quickly realized two things. First, there was much more to say than I could possibly fit in a Sunday piece for the newspaper. But second, there was a lot more that I hadn't read and I wanted to read. Books I'd missed along the way, books I knew were coming. In some ways, I didn't feel ready to, to write that kind of assessment yet. And so I thought, well, maybe the way to do this is through a book project. That'll give me a little bit of time and space to try to think bigger and try to read more. So. Um, that's where this came from. And uh, I know that the subtitle calls it an intellectual history, which really feels um, a little highfalutin, a little, a little much. But um, I would say that it is, my ambition for it is a sort of intellectual snapshot. I wanted to try to capture a moment of how people grappled with this period in, in real time and how I thought about it too. I wanted to have something that would help me remember how I, how I um, tried to make sense of it. Uh, and so that's that's where this came from. Well, and I think, you know, as I read it, I felt that as well, because you inject yourself into this as much as anywhere, anyone else. You also inject conversations you had with other writers as well. And I, I remember, I think, toward the end of the book, I think it's David Frum. Do you remember what he says to you? He says, I never thought I would be spending this. <laughs> what does he actually say? How does that quote go? That was that was something that Frum didn't say to me. He, I think, he wrote it in his book. But I felt like I was in conversation. He said, "You know, I never." It was something like, "I never thought that I would spend so much of my mental energy and waking hours, you know, thinking and writing about Donald Trump." Um, and all I could say is, "You know, man, I hear you. You know, same, same, same here. I, it, it never occurred to me when I took this job that that would happen." Well, with 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 a week from the election and where it was just called a few days ago, we know that that weight was on 
so many people that after it was called, there were people dancing in the streets. I know that I, for the very first Sunday, didn't feel compelled to wake up and go to the Sunday talk shows. <laughs> uh, know, I could sleep, I could yeah. sleep a, with a little bit more rest uh, and less preoccupation. Um, it was interesting to me uh, as a bookseller when he first was elected and people were first trying to figure out just who this guy was. Like you, they went to his books. So his books did sell at the beginning. And then Tony Schwartz famously came out and put the kibosh on all of that. But then there were other books that kind of started, started showing up, books that were written way before this. I remember Mark Singer had a book out, which was a, basically a long New Yorker piece that he wrote about Donald Trump you know, maybe 15 years ago or so, his interaction with Trump. But really, the books that people I found gravitating to seemed to be more fiction than it was nonfiction at first. We sold lots of copies of It Can't Happen Here, you know, when that, when, you know, because I think we were all surprised that it did happen. Here. Right. Can you explain that a little bit about how we began to try to make sense of it yeah. in fiction first? Uh, I was one of those readers that went back to Sinclair Lewis, to uh, to to Philip Roth's uh, *Pot Against America*, and and other books. But I think that helps explain, in a sense, uh, how Trump uh, won the election in in 2016. And part of it was just that people didn't think it could happen, um, and including significant American institutions acted in ways as if it was simply impossible. Um, and I include there um, the, the press, which gave Trump inordinate coverage um, at the time, especially on, on television and of, you know, regarding his, his, his rallies and the rest. Um, but also uh, even, even the Obama administration, for instance, didn't, uh, perhaps act as forcefully against Russian interference in the 2016 election when they knew about it, because well, you know, Hillary will take care of that. You know, afterwards, right? Like there was this, there was this sense that it was, it, it wasn't going to happen. Um, the FBI, I mean, James Comey in his memoir right. wrote about how he had made certain assumptions about how the campaign was going, and he didn't want it to seem later, after Hillary Clinton was president, that he had in any way, um, you know, gone easy on her. Right. Which is, I think, why he made that big blunder at the end of the campaign. And, and he, yeah, you know, I, me, I that think was, that was like cover your ass kind of thing. And he, he sort of fesses up to that in the memoir, kind of, sort of. It's, it's, a, it's a tricky memoir to read. But so I, I think so many people, to, to get back to your, to your point about fiction, I think so many people um, simply couldn't, process this as a reality because it didn't seem fathomable even even trump trump's campaign itself i mean his his team didn't think he was going to win um that that fiction quickly became uh sort of the 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 last resort to understand it or to to at least process it and so suddenly you see 1984 you know shooting to the top of bestseller lists and 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 it can't happen here and and the plot against america and 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 other works of fiction because um, because it didn't, in, in a weird way, it didn't seem real. 
And, and to pick up on that as well, his actions then outstripped any kind of fiction that was written. In, in other words, it became so unreal that there were so few references to, you know, historical references in fiction that made any sense of this. Even, you know, I just, I just finished Carl Hyacinth's Squeeze Me. Uh, and it, it does become, you know, it becomes the world of black humor, ultimately. It becomes the world of satire. Talk about how you went and organized these 150 books that you did end up reading for the book. Yeah, that that part was tricky, and it, it took a lot of thought to figure out sort of the the classification of these books because they're books that could, you know, fit in any number of of categories. But um, you know, one of the mantras in journalism is let let chronology be your friend, and I decided to sort of let chronology be my friend in this case as well, and I I saw that there was these sort of booms in different kinds of books throughout the four years of the Trump presidency. And early on was, um, you know, came, came all the books about the white working class or, or many of them at least. Uh, and some of course had been conceived of, you know, in a pre-Trump environment, right? Like, like Hillbilly Elegy is not a Trump, by J.D. Vance, it's not a Trump book. Trump is not mentioned in it. It was written before Trump. It was, it covers a completely different period, but it became a Trump book. Um, uh, same with um, White Trash by Nancy Eisenberg. And, uh, and in fact, you know, even others that came out later during the Trump years were, were often books that had been written and developed earlier, such as um, Heartland by, by Sarah Smarsh. If, if Hillbilly Elegy is sort of a um, kind of Trump whispering book from the right, um, you know, Heartland, uh, tells a, a similar story, you know, not in Kentucky or, Can or Ohio, but in, but in Kansas, um, but from much, much more of a left perspective. So Carlos, how do you make sense of that? How do you make sense of two people viewing, you know, viewing the heartland mm -hmm. and two people viewing it so very, very differently? Is, it, is that somewhat um, a metaphor for the division that we have in this country to some extent now? I think it, it could be. But I also think that, uh, you know, people are complicated and people have different, different experiences. And there was this compulsion in a lot of these books, especially the ones written by, by journalists, um, to make one big definitive statement about why certain kinds of people supported Donald Trump. And you could either say it was because of their cultural prejudice and racism, or it was because of their economic struggles, and never the twain shall meet, right? It's one or the other, that's it. You know, you, you, you have to pick. And, and I think people are more complicated than that. I think motives can be mixed. Um, and one, one amazing uh, anecdote that I, I discovered reading several of these books, um, which I mentioned in, in the book, is, how two authors ended up profiling the same um, Pennsylvania Trump voter, this guy who had, who had been a longtime Democrat, labor organizer, and ended up switching in 2016 from the Democratic Party to vote for Donald Trump. Um, Ed Harry, Luzerne County, Pennsylvania. 
And I read about him in this book called The Great Revolt by Selena Zito and Brad Todd, and which came out in early um, 2018, I think. And it's more of, she writes more from the right perspective. Exactly, exactly. And, and in her point of view, in her telling, this, 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 uh, this voter was uh, motivated to support Trump because you know, he felt the Democratic Party had forgotten the working class, he was suspicious of big trade deals, and he didn't like the Bushes or the Clintons, you know, family dynasties. And so he's very much an economic populist, and that's why he supports Trump. Then about four or five months later, I'm reading another book, and I hear about this guy from Luzerne County, Pennsylvania, you know, longtime Democrat, labor organizer, who switched to Trump. I was like, wait, I, I, I know this guy. How do I know this guy? Um, and of course, I'd read, you know, maybe 10 books in between, right? And so it didn't come easy right away. But then it hits me like, that's the guy I read about in The Great Revolt. Except in this book by Ben Bradley Jr., um, who used to be at the Boston Globe. Uh, in, this, in this book, he's animated, um, you know, by the culture wars. He's, you know, he's a 9-11 truther. He thinks George Soros is funding Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, he's worried about transgender bathrooms. Like, his motives look entirely different. And I'm not suggesting that either of these uh, journalists, uh, you know, overtly and, and purposely, you know, misled readers or mischaracterized Ed Harry. But Ed Harry's still Ed Harry, right? And I think that journalists sometimes see what they want to see. And in both of these cases, the kind of motives that this one voter had um, fit just perfectly with the larger explanation that each journalist had as to why Trump won. And I'm so glad that I realized that, that I, that I happened to read these two books where I saw this, because um, it just, it's, it's useful for me to have that little bit of pause and, and, and skepticism and to realize that, uh, you know, voters may make decisions for all sorts of reasons and trying to condense that, that, uh, that motivation into one quick catchphrase um, can be can be dangerous. Yeah, truth truth is a very slippery slope to go down, in that sense. But um, or to characterize something as truth uh, when you're dealing with a person, it, it's interesting the way you the way you organize this because it was the way I sort of saw it as well at the beginning. At the beginning of the presidency, it was like, how did this happen? And who are those people? We have to understand those people. Exactly. How did we miss those people? But then it began to shift a little bit. And then your next chapter is about the yes. kind of, um, you know, the kind of, the kind of revolt against that way of thinking, the mm -hmm. kind of resistance, you might say. I think you call it resistible, right? Yes, yes. And that, you know, that was, yes, that was the second chapter of the book. And that, um, those books started coming out right away. And it was, um, a lot of them were kind of essay anthologies, which is sometimes the quickest way to, to put something together, you know, just get a bunch of writers to, to each submit something. Um, and these were, you know, novelists and politicians and, and artists and activists writing these books. And what you sensed in those books more than anything early on was just this deep, raw emotion. Um, and, um, you know, like anger, shock, fear, pain. Um, you know, I, I, I sort of 
joked that these all were kind of like the how how awful I felt on election night kind of books, you know, in which people kept kind of walking through that experience. Um, and what you see in these books often is almost a sense of of unity but retrenchment, right? Like like this thing has happened that we feel uh, deeply opposed to and concerned about. And so a lot of these writers began um, digging into their communities, whether these are you know, different kinds of identity communities, professional communities. Um, and in a sense, uh, it's an entirely understandable impulse, right? When, when, when confronted with something like this. Um, but I think it also uh, seemed to miss an opportunity in this writing to try to in any way understand, let alone reach out uh, to the kinds of communities I wrote about in the first chapter, right? right. These, these became, it's, this, it, it became this, this clear split. Um, and it sort of stayed that way. And you see, you know, deep concern for Trump's America, but not a lot of concern for Trump's Americans, right? I do want it to was, point out one yeah. book that was in this category mm-hmm. that I think probably set a whole new tone in talking about Trump. And it also probably created more angst than any other book that was published during this period. And that's Timothy Snyder's On Tyranny. That book in a very slim volume, you know, immediately made people who were thinking about it can't happen here, that it was happening here in a sense. And I remember how that set so many people on edge. And Timothy Snyder is a very interesting person because it led me to go down the road or the rabbit hole and start reading his books Mm. about, you know, about Russia, about what was happening in Eastern Europe, you know, books and things I knew nothing about. The rise of Putin, how Putin actually, you know, used the tropes of the white Russians in order to take power again. And, and in this little slim book, I mean, we sold thousands of them, you know, just at the store by having it on the counter. Talk a little bit about that book, if you would. Yes. Uh, there are books. So I have a bookshelf in my house that is just for the books that I've reviewed, uh, whether at the Washington Post or elsewhere. Um, and, uh, you know, I look at that shelf and sometimes I come across a book that I honestly have almost no memory of having even read and reviewed. Um, and, you know, and yet I did, I look at my reviews like, Oh, that's what I thought about that. I had completely forgotten that this was, you know, this was in that book. Um, but yet there are others where I remember where I was in my house. I remember the weather. I remember what the day felt like. I remember everything about the experience. I remember where quotes are on certain parts of different pages um, in that book. And On Tyranny is one of those books. Um, Part of it was timing. It came out just at the very beginning of the Trump presidency. It came out just after, I believe, the the travel ban had been announced. Um, It came out at a moment of great consternation. Um, and of course, had been written in that, you know, in that same kind of feeling. It, it's it's uh, it, its origins were a, a Facebook post that Timothy Snyder 
had just a few days after the election. It was still November of, of 2016. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, a smart publisher, you know, seized on it and said, this could be, this could be a short book. Um, and what I loved about that book is that it didn't have to do a lot of predicting about what Trump might do, or it didn't even have to really be about Trump. Um, it was a book that showed the ways in which uh, authoritarianism can gradually take over and the, the warning signs um, involved in that. And it, you know, sometimes you read a book and you can tell that the sum total of what the author knows is what is on the page, right? And other times you can read a book and you see how every sentence, every paragraph, every chapter comes from a depth of understanding. Oh, I, I, want, I wanted to uh, leave the store and go study with him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's that's the kind of that's the kind of book that it was, right? You can tell that everything builds on a like right. a vast reservoir of knowledge. And of course, what he did subsequently, he wrote *The Road to Unfreedom* right. um, a couple of years later, which was uh, a a sort of more substantial book. You could see flashes of on tyranny in it, um, and I always wonder if it's just that the you know, Snyder and the publisher is like, you know, we, we missed a chance to write a more significant book the first time, a hardcover, you know, and, and um, they did it now. But I think that reading them together is very instructive because you, you sort of see where that came from. Would you put where, Anne Applebaum's book into that category as well? Uh, yes. The Tyranny of Democracy. I mean, I yeah, thought the, that too. The Twilight of Democracy, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The Twilight. And, and that to me was a terrific companion to all of that because she also is not really talking about Trump. She's really talking about what happened in Poland and, and using it as a metaphor for what we were seeing happen. Yeah. There's These been, are the kinds of things, yeah. you know, as a, as a kid of the sixties who grew up skeptical, you know, the, it, it took me by surprise. I mean, you know, the, the, the inability of our institutions to be able to ward off what he was doing, I was very skeptical about on tyranny. I thought, oh, that's an overreaction, <laughs> you know, at first. Right. I thought, oh, someone, that could never, you know, it could never happen here kind of thing. And, and reading, reading Anne and reading, reading, you know, on tyranny made me say, whoa, you know, these, these things turn on a dime sometimes. Yeah. Um, I really liked Anne Applebaum's book. I didn't, um, I didn't read it sort of as, as soon as it came out. I just read it in the last, I read it actually in the last few days while we were waiting for the outcome of the election. Right. Um, and I, I think that there's a, a category of books uh, like this, like, like these that has emerged during the Trump years. It's sort of longer than a magazine essay, perhaps shorter than a conventional book. Um, Masha Gessen's um, yes. autocracy book is is in in that category as well, and um, what's wonderful about just say those three authors, right, is that they bring so much uh, knowledge and experience to that um, almost essayistic form, right? If you want to really see, um, um, if, if you want to see the footnotes, right, you you read. Um, you read Masha Gessen's The Future is History about how, how the Soviet Union, you know, became this, this kind of Russia, uh, un, became Putin's Russia. You know, if you want to read the, the, the footnotes of, of um, 
of Snyder. You know, you can read um, Road to Unfreedom, you know, Bloodlands, all these other books. Um, and the same with, with Anne Applebaum, whose, you know, whose, whose histories of, of totalitarian regimes, of the gulag, you know, these, these um, you, you sort of, and so that's, so when you get books like these, these shorter, more essay books, you see how deeply grounded they are. And that's what make those successful books. There's been a lot of quickie Trump books um, that uh, are useful, but sort of ephemeral, right? And, and I think the ones we're talking about um, managed to, to surpass that because they come from that well of, of insight and often of experience. They're also from, you know, they, they, they also tend, at least for me, they tend to jolt the reader who is somewhat, you know, somewhat hasn't experienced that kind of world upheaval. That's the other thing. You know, we've been, you know, with all of the upheaval that we've had here in the United States over the last 50, 60 years, we haven't had, we haven't had the assault on our institutions in the very same way. You might say Nixon did to some extent, mm -hmm. but quickly it was healed. Uh, certainly, you know, certainly there's a lot of bad stuff that's happened, but you always felt that you could work somewhat through the institutions to get to the end of it. These people you're talking about come from either studied or come from worlds in which institutions collapsed. And when you understand that that can happen, for me, it's eye-opening. You know, it's just, it's like, whoa, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it changes my perspective on the way that I look at news and the way that I look at the world. And then what interestingly happened, you know, is that the world between, you know, what was conservative and what was not began to blur. And you've read, you wrote, and you write about a whole series of books in which there's yeah. a conservative take. And then is Max Boot really a conservative? <laughs> is 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 from really a conservative and who would ever imagine that the allies you know the ally the, the people who fought the fight during the bush years would all of a sudden be allies to the resistance during these years so talk a little mm -hmm. bit about those books as well yeah. yes um so one of the things that interested me most during the trump presidency was the fight on the right um, and what was happening to, to the Republican Party, to the, to the conservative movement. Um, and so I read a lot of those, of those books, and I found a few clusters. Uh, on the one hand, you had, you had the sort of straight-up sycophantic writers, uh, people who, who kind of glommed on to Trump and Trumpism right at the beginning and uh, just decided to make their peace and 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 you know ride this new wave as as long as they could. A lot of these books are sort of Fox News personalities, um, and you see the ways that they both um, you know imitate the president's own you know speech and cadence and 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 ticks, and um, uh, and also just how they kind of wave away anything that is too disagreeable about about President Trump. Um, Newt Gingrich is, you know, a a repeat offender in this category. He wrote four books during the Trump presidency about Trump, um, uh, who is sort of his new political patron. And I remember one moment when I can't remember which of these books when he's talking about how Trump during his uh, speech launching his campaign um, 
you know, labeled Mexican immigrants as, as you know, criminals and, and rapists and, and drug smugglers. And, um, you know, Gingrich said that, you know, maybe that wasn't, that wasn't great. You know, that's not something he should have done or, or said, but it was okay because he was sending a signal that he wasn't going to, you know, be, you know, brought down by political correctness on immigration, right? Like that kind of slippery little shift is something that you see throughout those kinds of books. Um, then you had a whole other set of books uh, by what has become known as the, the never Trump conservatives, right? The, the um, uh, sort of, you know, devoted conservatives who from the very beginning realized that Trump was not at all a conservative, not what they wanted, declared their opposition early on and, and held fast to it. Uh, those numbers dwindled over the course of the Trump presidency. There were, um, you know, National Review, the conservative magazine. Um, you know, is that had Rich this, Lowry? Is that him? Yes. Yeah. It, it had this famous, um, you know, against Trump cover issue where, you know, all these, all these conservatives declare their opposition to Trump. And of course, many of those, um, you know, dropped the against and just, just became Trump uh, over the course of the past four years. But there were several who did not. Um, like, uh, Max Boot, for instance, is is one of the most notable. Um, Charlie Sykes, also, uh, Rick and, Wilson and Rick, Rick Wilson, ex exactly. Jeff Flake, uh, to a certain degree, and and they wrote these books that were these sort of very impassioned, you know, almost breakup letters to to the Republican Party and 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 the conservative movement. Um, but what I found is that they just to my to my perspective they didn't really grapple too deeply with their own role in kind of how this even came about how trump even got within within you know stone throwing distance of i mean we had sarah presidency. palin sarah palin almost became our vice president right right and and you know now they they look at the party they look at the conservative movement and they you know, they either reject it or they want to rethink it or they call for a whole new version of, but say that, you know, the party had managed to eke out one more establishment nominee, right? Say Jeb Bush had been the nominee in 2016 or Marco Rubio or something like that. Um, you know, none of this rethinking would have happened, right? None of, you know, even though, even though the, the state of the party was still going to be very similar, even though they would have riled up the base you know, to, you know, with plenty of misinformation to kind of get, um, you know, get support for the, for, for these nominees in turn, like the big thinkers in, in the party, um, the kind of people who would, would have served as, as, you know, foreign policy advisors or, you know, campaign advisors, um, you know, would, wouldn't have bothered to, to rethink those principles, to, to reconsider what was going on. And in a sense, what happened, and Rick Wilson writes about this in, in, in his book, is that, um, you know, we thought we could control this, this kind of fever in the base of, of the party that we had created. And then in 2016, we lost control of it. Um, and so, you know, those are, there's a kind of anguish to the never Trump literature because, you know, they've kind of been cast out um, or, or willingly have cast themselves out and, you know, a lot of friendships and relationships, you know, torn asunder as tends to happen in these political moments. Um, uh, so, you know, among the, the 
conservative writing, I found those um, just kind of captivating to read, even if I, you know, I sort of didn't quite um, think that they were being, you know, fully on the up and up there about about how this had been going on for a long, long time, and in in in, in many ways, it was um, the party establishment that sort of enabled it or looked away while it was while it was happening. And finally, the last set of books are um, the sort of the, the cadre of pro-Trump intellectuals, historians and economists and, and editors who are trying to retrofit uh, some kind of coherent ideology onto Trumpism, which is very hard because Trump doesn't hew to any coherent ideology. Trump is very impulsive. Is that um, like Hugh Hewitt, sort of Hugh Hewitt? And then, in those kinds yes, of Hugh things? Hewitt, um, I, would say, I would say Rich Lowry, right. um, Michael Anton, Victor Davis Hanson, um, and what what comes across to me in a lot of these books is that um, they claim to support Trump for some kind of um, you know principled ideological policy reason, but they're mainly on board because of shared enemies, right? right? And and um, you know the enemy of, of my enemy kind of kind right. of deal there, and uh, and so. That's how you see that, uh, you know, the, the contortions people are willing to make to end up supporting a leader um, just have no end. Um, because in part, what you're doing is you're not really on board with whatever principles of Trumpism may exist, but you, you just share common enemies. Um, and, and so that's kind of the divide I found in, in the, the sort of conservative book world. And, and then the Trump presidency, I think, ripped the bandage off of so many social ills that this country has been suffering from for, for so many years. And that spawned a whole series of books. Books, you know, when, when he did the border wall, you write about that, mm-hmm. you know, the separation, um, everything having to do... Um, uh, you know, with Latinx, the Latinx experience, the Black Lives Matter experience, those books just began to boom in so many ways. Mm-hmm. And I think in many ways, those books probably were, became the books that were most widely read at some okay. point. Um, it's really interesting to me to see, you know, certainly, you know, when a... Um, when a book by Woodward comes out, it's mm-hmm. huge at first, and then nobody reads it anymore. Do you know? I mean, okay. because you know, because everybody, everybody knows what's in it. It's of the moment. But when you're talking about Ibram Kendi, for instance, mm-hmm. or you're talking about Tanahasi Coates, you know, people are reading those, and you know, white, black, Latinx, you know, everyone is reading those kinds of books. And I think that that bandage that got ripped off through the George Floyd thing, through the pandemic, through everything that was going on. Those books to me, and I'm curious to whether you feel the same way, those books might have a very long lasting um, effect 
on the way we view the world from this cultural perspective. I don't know how you feel about it, but I, I'm I seeing right. it happen. Yeah. I think I think you're right. I think that they uh, are the kind of books that generate wide appeal and and interest. I, um, you know, people I encounter in all sorts of different walks of life um, may discuss those books in ways that they wouldn't discuss. You know, the latest bestseller about what's going on inside the White House. Right. Um, and so I ended up reading a lot of those over the past four years. Um, it felt sort of a boom time for sort of um, memoir-like argument. You know, Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, um, exemplified that. Um, what, I, what I found most notable in a lot of these books um, is how you, you think of these books as being um, about group identity and group representation. Um, but when you get into the stories, you, know, you find underlying them is just this sort of piercing quest for individual dignity, right? And maybe that's just easier in a group setting, but it, it really is about, you know, the, the individual dignity of uh, people telling their stories. And beautifully said. a book like um, uh, When They Call You a Terrorist, by Patrice Kahn Cullors, who was one of the um, original founders of, of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, is a perfect example, right? Because you think of Black Lives Matter and, you know, it's, it's all about, you know, group representation and, 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 and group rights and group justice. And, um, and that makes sense. But you, you read her story and it's about her own, her own life. It's about her brother, Monty, right, who is circling back and forth between prison and the hospital, right? Between mm -hmm. rehab and jail and, and, and how, you know, talk about family separation. We, you know, we, we think of that in the context of the border and immigration, um, but, you know, the ongoing endless family separation prison. Uh, prison. Is, 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 is because of incarceration. And, and, you know, and, and that's something that she deals with in the book. Kendi's book, um, in in some ways, is he's a more I wouldn't say more. He's he's a complicated figure because, um, you know, there's I sort of think of like historian Kendi and activist Kendi and memoirist right. Kendi, and those right. three don't always agree, um, <laughs> at, at least to 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 my mind. Um, but you know, in that book, in in How to Be an Anti Racist, he doesn't. Um, you know, he's not casting aspersions on, um, you know, white Americans as a group or lionizing black Americans as a group. You know, he, for him, it, it does come down to individuals, right? And, and he's very um, kind of dogmatic about it and that sort of in every moment you're choosing to be racist or anti-racist, right? Um, but, um, but he leaves open the possibility and the reality of, um, of individual agency. And, and that, that book to me is, is a powerful example of that. I think I benefited from having read um, his prior book first, uh, Stamp from the Beginning. Mm -hmm. um, not everyone reviewed that book when it came out. I, um, I was, I'm glad that I did. And then later it won the National Book Award. It became this mm -hmm. big deal. Um, but, 
that book that took this problem out of this moment and put it across the you know hundreds of years of American and you know pre-colonial history uh, to explore how racist ideas develop um, was was very helpful. And and when people tell me that you know oh I just bought How to Be an Anti-Racist or I bought this other book I'm like read Stamped first right. you know like go right. if you really want to do this read that other book first. Um, and so, you know, it, there was this weird period in the, and perhaps the second Obama administration, um, where um, you had the works of Ta-Nehisi Coates that, you know, became so notable that in some ways, like, sucked the oxygen out of, um, you know, the possibility of, of, of reading, like, other Black writers or other writers of color. And it was just like, well, read Coates and you're good, right, was the, 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 the feeling among kind of like newly enlightened white Americans, right? right. And, and I think that what you've seen now um, is how that's just blown wide open and, and well, you have and this would, multiplicity say, of voices. And I would say that the complexity of voices, it's not only blown wide, wide open on the nonfiction side, but on the, on the fiction side, it's, there's, no, there's no rules anymore. I mean, in terms of, I mean, this, the diversity of voices that people are reading is so wonderful to see. Uh, and it, it, it hues to, you know, to people who've been writing, you know, reading, you know, writing forever, you know, people like Walter Mosley and, uh, you know, James McBride, Donkey King Kong, and, you know, to new writers like the author of A Burning, you know, uh, Mega, Mega, uh, who wrote that. And so people are wanting to, you know, I think it's really been a wonderful, I think that's going to be the long lasting hangover from all of this is that huh. we have started this dialogue that isn't going to end with the Trump administration. You know, the idea of tyranny might end with the Trump administration, but the idea that, you know, that, that we need more cultural diversity and we need to understand each other better, all of that is not going to end. I mean, you're seeing it, what's happening in newsrooms and publishing houses in this whole idea of getting, you know, even in film companies, you know, mm -hmm. I was talking to somebody, it was really interesting. I mean, there's been such a lack of mentoring in the arts that if you're a very, very talented, you know, black filmmaker, your dance card is completely filled for a very, very long time, you know, <laughs> because, you know, you know, so people are bringing in new voices where they were shut out in the past. And I, I think that's a really, really important good thing that's happened from the books that you write about as well. And you're seeing it in, in, in publishing as well, not just in terms of authors, but in terms of the editors and gatekeepers, yeah. right? You're having a, a huge number of a very high profile, um, uh, you know, often black women, uh, you know, who are now running significant imprints, you know, uh, well, Dana Kennedy. Luke. Lisa, Lisa, Lu Lisa exactly. Lucas, Lisa Lucas, who left left the National Book Foundation for Pantheon, uh, uh huh, and um, and Dana Kennedy, who left the the you know being the administrator of the Pulitzer Prizes to right. um, to be the editor of Simon and Schuster, and then uh, Mir Miriam and Mark uh, Miriam Marquez, we were talking about earlier, is now an editor for Latinx books at Simon and Schuster as well. Right. Yeah. Simon maybe, and Schuster, maybe the Mammy Herald. I have to say, I, I'm not going to embarrass you, but you are published by Simon & Schuster, but yes. the, var the variety of books published 
uh, on political subjects coming out of Simon & Schuster is mind-boggling, actually. And I, I want to I end this part of our conversation by talking about a book that I was really surprised to like as much as I did, and that was Mary Trump's book. I don't know uh-huh. if, you know, uh, to me, it was really a memoir. It was more than a Trump book. It was really, I mean, it was heartbreaking about her father and all of that. I mean, it could stand on its own. And it was beautifully written as well, I thought. What is your take I, on that one? I really liked Mary Trump's book. I um, I felt I felt bad because it, it came out too late for me to be able to include in in my book, but I did review it for the Washington Post. Um, and it was, first of all, you're right. It was, it was very nicely written. It was, it was funny and great moments. Um, but it was such a unique combination of vantage points that, uh, that made it, made it a, a special and memorable book. Um, first off of close, she's, you know, she's a, she's a close relative, right? And, and, uh, you know, she's Donald Trump's niece. Um, and has been part of this family and seen it up close for for decades. Also, she happens to have a doctorate in psychology, right? And and you know, and so she went to a writing program as well. Yeah, and exactly. And so many people have been diagnosing Donald Trump from afar. Um, that someone who has been able to um, basically gather notes for decades uh, and 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 can bring that lens to it, um, I found I found utterly fascinating. Also, I mean, she has a clear ax to grind, but she's honest about it, right? Like she got cut out of the Fred Trump fortune, <laughs> right? Um, her father, Freddie Trump, was treated horribly by Donald and by her grandfather, Fred Trump. Um, and, you know, part of me wonders, you know, if they just had treated her better, if they hadn't been unfair to her and her brother, would this book even exist? You know, like maybe she wouldn't have felt compelled to tell the story, but it's all there, right? Like there's no ambiguity about that. And it's so rare to be able to see, um, you know, a, a character like that up close um, without their own filter, right? Like, I mean, we're, we're all going to read Barack Obama's memoir next right. week. Um, and it'll be, you know, his curated story of, of his presidency. Um, you know, Mary Trump, um, you know, just tells you what she sees. And in a weird way, it as, as much as I, I like that book, it reminds me of a book that I didn't like at all, that, that just made me want to just stop reading Trump books altogether. Um, uh, and that's Michael Cohen's book, Disloyal. Uh, Cohen, Trump's longtime personal lawyer. But similar to Mary Trump, he had just a front row, you know, eight or 10 year, um, uh, you know, seat um, at the Trump show and just, you know, by his side, his last phone call at night, um, and he really gives you a very clear sense of how he thinks and and how he operates. And my, um, it's kind of gross the book. I mean, because because Cohen himself is not a very agreeable figure, and he tells you all these awful things he did for Trump. Um, but you know, he when he, and he, it's not that Trump made him into that. When he was younger, he wanted to be the the young Henry Hill character from Goodfellas, you know, the, right. the, the young Ray Liotta. He, he wanted he to be that guy. He wanted to, guy. Yeah, he yeah. wanted to be, but he wanted to be like, like the gopher for the wise guys, right? right. And, right. and um, but there's a moment in Disloyal that um, 
I'll always remember. And, and that is, uh, he had just started working full time for Trump and they're at Trump Tower and they come down the elevator or whatever and are walking through the atrium, right, on the main floor. And they're just mobbed by people wanting autographs and wanting to take pictures. I think this was like the height of the apprentice fame and everything. And so Michael Cohen's just blown away because suddenly he's like adjacent to fame, right? And, and Trump, you know, winks at him and kind of leans in and whispers, this is what Trump is all about. Oh, right? And, and it's just, but it's true, right? That's exactly what Trump is all about, right? It's, it's the theatrics of it. Right, it's, right. The, it's the adulation. I mean, that's how he kind of sees the presidency, right? It's all right. about like the speech and the signing ceremony and the rallies. It's about the theatrics of governing as opposed to actually governing. And so that moment just, I wish I'd read it earlier in the Trump presidency and not like in a book that came out at the end because it just, it's become in my head this thing that completely distills it. You know, like well, that's I what think, it's about. I think you make your point, uh, your point is even finer when you think about where he's been since the election. He hasn't been governing. He hasn't been talking. He's been, he's been playing golf and mm -hmm. stewing, basically. Um, the other thing, and I don't want you to go through all of them, but I want to tell people out there that this is an essential book to have, you know, over these, to know about these last four years, because not only does it give you that sense of where we've been, why we've been, why we were doing what we were doing, but it also provides you with a reading list, <laughs> an annotated reading list, if you want to catch up on what you've missed. And you end it with an amazing little epilogue. I think it's called 12 Books, is that yes. right? And it's the 12, the still, the 12 books that Carl, I don't want you to go into all the books, but right. say what it is that this, these 12 mm -hmm. books are. Yeah, well, part of it comes from the fact that, you know, even before this book, anyone I talk to always says, well, what, what should I read to really understand what's going on? And, um, you know, and all I can say is that I have no idea because it depends on, you know, your own interests and blind spots and, you know, what you missed and what you what you most care about. Um, and so it's it's hard to sort of say, here's the one book. Right. But um, so in that epilogue, I explained the 12 books that in a very personal level just helped me make sense of this period um, and filled in some of my gaps and and my blind spots. Um, and I'm not even saying these are these are the best because I mean you know another another critic or another another writer or reader could come up with another great twelve books uh, you know totally different from from this list, but to me, um, you know they they help fill in gaps and one of those gaps is that what we've heard you know throughout this um, this 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 period has been how Trump is you know eviscerating norms and institutions. And um, one book that really helped me understand what that means is a book um, called Unmaking the Presidency by Susan Hennessy and Benjamin Wittes, um, where they show you where all these norms of presidential conduct and behavior came from, sort of throughout American history, how they kind of accreted around the presidency and what it means um, when they are disregarded, right? Like that, that was sort of, really useful for anyone who's ever been like, you know, but norms, norms are, norms are, right. you know, what, what we've all just rediscovered now, right? Um, Michael Lewis's The Fifth Risk, uh, an extraordinary book, 
that shows you what happens when expertise is disregarded within the federal government. And he does so by examining what is going on in uh, the departments of energy, commerce, and agriculture, um, and how those do things and manage risks that you, you know, that we don't really fathom day to day. Um, and what it means when you appoint people to run agencies who are, uh, you know, personally opposed to the missions of those agencies, as has happened so often during during this period. Uh, one Person, No Vote by Carol Anderson is another one of these mm -hmm. books for me uh, that digs deep into the history of the struggle for voting rights and the very insidious evolution of uh, voter suppression tactics um, from very overt, uh, you know, in, in past periods of American history to, to more subtle but, but equally effective. Um, and weirdly, um, you know, I, I, I teach a, a journalism class uh, for Notre Dame remotely now, and um, that's, that's my, my alma mater. And um, I make my students read some of these books. And uh, this semester, I made them read the Mueller report. Um, mm. Because I know, like, poor, you know, they, they were not thrilled. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, because it's dense. But I was like, hey, there's a lot of redactions, you know, so you can, you can get through it quickly. <laughs> but, um, you know, that book, I think of as almost a time capsule. Like, if, if you were to create a time capsule for this era, like, you'd have to stick the Mueller report right. in it. Um, because it... Um, it summarizes it everything that, that happened up to it that It does, and, and also it, like the, the, the weird thing about it is that it leaves this great trail of breadcrumbs, right? Um, you know, that Mueller was sort of leaving for Congress, like now you take the ball and, and run with it. Um, and of course they, they didn't, but it also perfectly encapsulates kind of the evolution of the Trump years because for, for two years or almost two years while he was, while Mueller and his team were, were doing this, you all these people are like, look, Mueller's going to save us. We've got to protect him. You know, like, let's just wait for Mueller. You know, he's like the Godot of, of, of the Trump era. And then suddenly it happens, right? There's the report. And he doesn't deliver on everything, right, right. on these insane expectations. And everyone had been saying, like, the reason Mueller's great is because he's a straight shooter. He's by the book. You know, he's a lawman. You know, he won't. Well, we, didn't, we didn't realize the limitations he had. Exactly. And now him. all those things. Now people are criticizing about him. Like, oh, you know, he got played. He was, he was too much of a straight shooter. He didn't realize, you know, how the world works now. And all the things that made him this heroic figure early on. Now, in a lot of the books that are coming out, including by some of his own, you know, staff, um, now are being held against him. And is, I see that as another outcome of this era in which, in which um, those kind of values are now deemed you know, old fashioned. Um, and I, I find that kind of tragic. And that's yeah. why I'm, I'm, I, that's why I make my students read the Mueller report. <laughs> so, so a, qu a quick question, and, and maybe we can dispatch this quickly. You know, I, I, I don't know if a lot of books about Trump are going to continue. I'm sure a lot of them are being written, but if he's in our rear view mirror, I don't know if they're going to have a I don't know if they're going to have a um, if if they're going to really catch hold. I I'm wondering if you feel as I do that the ones that will will be the ones that attempt to do more like Michael Lewis has done and has done in the past mm -hmm. things that are about our you know the structure of our government and you know 
you know, the weaknesses, the Achilles yeah. heel that we have. I wonder what your thinking is on this about where we go next with these books. And do you really ever want to read another one? <laughs> you know, um, on the day, on Saturday, when the election was called, um, my, my daughter had been at her, her Irish dancing lesson and my wife um, was driving her back. And the moment she gets out of the car, she's like, daddy, you don't have to read any more Trump books again. You know, like, like it's over. You know? um, and uh, of course, if she only knew, I think there's going to be Trump books for a long time. I think yeah. there's a bunch of memoirs that are going to come out that I would want to read. Um, I hope Anthony Fauci writes a memoir. I hope Kirsten Nielsen writes a memoir. Yeah. She Those was are right ones the, that I think would be great. To know. Right at the, in, in the middle of all the family separation uh, controversies. And I want to I know what she has to say about that, right? Uh, there's going to be histories. There's going to be more investigations. Um, and in some ways, I imagine that, you know, it's possible and likely that the best books of the Trump era have yet to be written, have, have, have yet to come out. Um, my, my hope um, as both a, 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 a book critic and a, and a citizen is that the books be better, but that they do worse. <laughs> commercially speaking, you know, if they're better and better in the sense that I, I think that they won't be so obsessed with the day-to-day -day mayhem of the White House and, and actually really help us understand um, the more lasting impact of this period, um, both where, where it came from, but, but what, it, what it meant. Um, and if they do worse commercially, um, I think it'll mean that the, the temperature may have diminished just a little bit in the country, and that won't be a bad thing. I hope people continue to buy all these books at Books and Books. But other than that, I, I want the, the kind of obsession, the day-to-day -day obsession with, um, with what's happening and the, the, that is bred in part by polarization. People want their, their views reinforced one way or the other. Um, I hope that that diminishes just a little bit. Well, Carlos, this has been an amazing conversation. I can't thank you enough for being on The Literary Life. And I urge everyone out there to make sure that What Were We Thinking is a book that you buy uh, and maybe gift a lot of over the holidays and uh, work your way through the lists that he writes about, the lists of books that he talks about. Um, I look forward to so much more uh, to come from you, Carlos. And uh, I, I hope to see you in Miami in the physical world at some point. Thank you so much, Mitch. 